0: Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This past week I uh, saw a news item in, uh, on the internet or one of the, pa- or the online news sources I was looking at and it kind of prompted, felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to, to, to kind of guide my thinking as far as the message this morning. But it was from a uh, Gallup poll recently, Uh, you know, the Gallup organization, they and others do polls and give evaluations and tests of the moods and different opinions of the country and where we're at, not just politics, but uh, behaviors, all sorts of things. And this was a Gallup poll concerning uh, Americans' attitude concerning the Bible, and I thought it was interesting. It wasn't really surprising. Now, again, this isn't necessarily those who uh, uh, in the church per se, but this is just Americans. And the the headline said fewer in the U.S. Fewer in the U.S. now see the Bible as the literal word of God. And the article went on to this recent poll that was taken by Gallup that said a record low twenty percent. Americans now say, 20% of Americans now say, the Bible is the literal Word of God, and that's down from 24% when the same question was asked in 2017. And about half of that, uh, it was a high back in 1980, 40% and in 84, 44% affirm that the Bible was the Word of God. So, Radical decrease, but you know, to those of us that observe our culture, there's no real shock. Uh, and again, this is just in a general American's attitude. It said, meanwhile, a new high of 29% in this poll say the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded just by man. The shift in attitudes about the Bible. Is not an isolated phenomenon. The article went on to say it comes even as a number of indicators show a decline in overall religiosity, whatever that is, generally a view of religion in the U.S. population. These measures, it concludes, uh, uh, these measures include declines in a formal identification with a particular religion, self-reported membership in a church, not identifying as part of a local church or any kind of religious service attendance, uh, and also a decline in people's view of religion in general or and even their belief in God. So when I read that, I mean, it wasn't really surprising, but it got to me, you know, as a pastor, I began to think, uh, of how sometimes promptings like that and things that we need to remind ourselves as a church body uh, concerning our, our understanding of the Bible. We kind of take that for granted and just assume that everybody kind of understands and accepts uh, the biblical teaching concerning the authority of the Word of God. And sometimes you have to kind of revisit Topics. You have to revisit things. Uh, Some of you are in a type of work where you have to refresh yourself. You have a refresher course every certain years to get a certain certification. Well, there's not going to be any certification this morning, but we want to kind of refresh ourselves in something that maybe we just you know, as if you're a believer, and this is certainly not something a challenge to you. There's probably other people around you, at least other people around in your culture who may make a claim of identifying with being a Christian or identifying with a certain group or church or whatever. But this shows that uh, our culture, as our our culture seems to give evidence of a lack of any uh, standards that we we would hold to, it's no surprise that certainly the decline in just a view of the Bible. But as Christians, we want to make sure that we're not not necessarily taking our cues from the Gallup poll or the culture. We want to make sure that as believers that our understanding is firm concerning the Bible. And so what about the Bible? Is it God's Word literally, or is it a record of man that contains in some spots here and there things that are inspired, but for the most part, uh, it is not necessarily the literal word of God. Uh, does somebody in the 21st century, a man or a woman, can we really take that seriously? Is that really something that is um, you know, practical, that we would look to this ancient record, this ancient book, as a standard concerning uh, morality, view, ethics, whatever? Is that something that really we should even take seriously? Some people look at the Bible Kind of as a good luck charm. You know, they might have a, a pristine Bible in their living room and have it nice with some little doilies or something, you know, around it and decorated, it. but it's not anything that really is relevant to their lives. As Christians, the Bible, like any other uh, book, I guess in one sense, is only gonna be of value as you open up uh, the book, as you read it, as you apply it as you engage with it. And certainly we know it's more, at least I believe, and I would assume the majority of you believe, that it is certainly more than just any other book. And so this morning we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3 in a couple of places here. And in the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3, just to give a little context of why Paul is writing, Paul is really addressing something very relevant to us. He is addressing uh, how it is that Christians could engage uh, in their culture in these uh, last days, these difficult times. Now, you know, every day since the ascension of Christ has been referred to as the last days. So, the last days of the early church, they thought it was the last days, we're in the last days, no man knows the day or hour of the Lord's return, but... It's safe to assume we're a little further down the road than they were in the first century. You know now whether we're in the last of the last of the last, I don't know, but we do know that Jesus is coming back, right? We agree with that. But but how is it that Christians uh, can navigate in a culture where there's declining values, there's a godlessness, there's kind of a attitude of breaking any rest- any uh, uh, any restraints that that uh, we just used to have in our culture, in our America, uh, just a a general acceptance of the Ten Commandments. That certainly is no more. We live in a culture when educated, high-ranking people can't even tell you what a woman is. That's how bad it is. Do you ever just sometimes watch the news and think you stepped into the twilight zone at some of the things that are being discussed? So, But again, our concern isn't to jack up the next Gallup poll. Our concern is how, as Christians, do we understand the Bible? How do we understand the Word of God and our our acceptance and our belief in what the Bible is? And as I mentioned in the first five verses of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you see how Paul, in context, is addressing uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, and of course his letters were circulated Uh, to be read in other churches, how they are to navigate living in hostile times. And he writes this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, its power. And Paul says, avoid such people. That could have been written today, right? I mean, that's taken out of the headlines, right? And he's addressing the question, how can a Christian navigate or survive, prosper if you will, in such an evil age? Well, if that's true in the first century, how much is it relevant and true to those of us in the 21st century? And it's interesting that Paul, what he Uh, What he counsels in the the next few verses is where we're going to zero in on our study this morning. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter. In that context, how can a Christian navigate in an evil age? He puts the emphasis upon the reliability and profitability of the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. Notice verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, and that's used in a generic way, it could be man or woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy already knew that. And I assume most of you already know that as well. But what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to underline it, underscore it. He wanted to burn it into his heart and into his mind, the conviction. And so revisit this truth. Don't We don't just assume that everybody understands what uh, is taught when we talk about the Bible as the Word of God, as the literal Word of God. We want to revisit it this morning very briefly. And obviously in the Time that we have, we can't go into all the different complexities. And we just want to, again, remind ourselves with some general principles that I believe we can draw out in these few verses. So, the title of the message today is Why We Need the Bible. Why We Need the Bible. And I want this just to, don't just kind of check out and go into autopilot and say, oh, I know all about that. Be reminded, allow yourself to be refreshed, and again, be have a renewed sense of some convictions about why we believe that the Bible is necessary and sufficient. And so I'm gonna give you two principles this morning uh, that we're gonna draw from this passage. And so principle number one is that you need the Bible because, number one, you're gonna you need the Bible because it is a trust worthy gift from God. And those words are intentional, trustworthy, gift from God, all right? And so verse 16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, that's what the ESV says. I think the New International Version says that. The King James, I believe, says that all scripture is inspired by God. But the word in the uh, original language in the Greek language literally means breathed out and that really creates a, a, a tremendous picture when you think about god 's understanding of the Bible that these are breathed out words when he created humans see, when he created Adam from the dust of the ground and he formed man, uh, what did he do that where man became a living soul? what did the, the Bible say? He did what he breathed into him he inspired him, if you will. When somebody dies, they pass away, they write on there the date and time of their, not inspiration, but their expiration, when life, breath went out of them. So the Bible is literally God's breathed books. I don't read uh, and have time to read uh, novels and that kind of thing. Uh, I used to read a little more of that. But you know what? The Word of God unlike uh, the best John Grisham novel or a Stephen King, if you're into that, or whatever it is. Hopefully not all those cheap romances, but anyway. Uh, but the Bible has something unique that no other book can claim. Oh, well, they can claim it, but the Bible demonstrates its power. Why? Because it, is, it has the breath of God on it. So what do we mean, to kind of unpack this, uh, that God is the originator of Scripture... When Paul says, he says, uh, what does Paul mean by all Scripture? When he talks about all Scripture, Uh, the word translated Scripture is used about 51 times depending on the version translation in the New Testament. And it always refers to either a part of the Bible or or the whole of the Bible when it talks about the Scriptures, okay? Uh, Sometimes it refers to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to a portion of the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to a particular passage in the New Testament or a larger portion in the New Testament. What Paul is meaning here when he's writing all Scripture is that he is referring to the totality of what we would call the Old Testament and up to when Paul was writing this, the apostolic, what we would call books or letters, written and authenticated or authored by the apostles, had the authority that were recognized as the Word of God. So when Paul wrote his apostolic here to First Timothy, or 2 Timothy, he's writing to his son in the faith, the apostle Paul is writing with the full weight and authority as an apostle called from God. Many scriptures we can look at that, but time wouldn't allow us to do it sufficiently, so I'll only give you one scripture as an example, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Just as an example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, and we impart this, what he's writing to the church at Corinth, and we impart this in words, notice what he says, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Spirit's capitalized there. Doesn't mean he just is a spirited writer. No, the Holy Spirit is breathing upon Paul's writing, what he's addressing. Now, this is when we talk about inspired authors, we're not talking about this thing sometimes you read about psychics and call it mechanical dictation where they go under some spell or trance and all of a sudden they just start uncontrollably writing. That is not what, the, what is taught in Scripture. And we'll, we'll look at that in a little more uh, detail in a, bit, in a minute. It means that God oversaw, superseded uh, these writings of the apostle. You remember, we won't, I don't have it on the screen, but if you remember in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians, that's the, Paul is writing a defense of the gospel. He's defending his apostolicship uh, as an apostle sent by God. And right, right at verse 11 in chapter 1, he reminds his readers there in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he says, this gospel I preached to you did not originate in human, uh, I was not taught by other men what I'm teaching you. And he goes on to say, I didn't, you know, I didn't get this from the, from the other apostles in Jerusalem. It wasn't taught to me uh, by other men. But he says, what I'm telling you, or what this gospel is, I'm telling you because it was given to me as a revelation from Jesus Christ. It was divinely revealed to the apostle Paul what he was writing to them. It had its origin. This is why we're talking about it being trustworthy from God, it had its origin with God, and Paul affirms that there in Galatians. So the Greek word breathed out by God, it points, uh, and that's uh, the word when we mean by inspired. Going back to the uh, outline, the second is what does inspired mean? And we've kind of, again, talked a little bit about that, but it means to breathe out. It's, it points to God's initiative, God's influence as the source of scripture, okay? God used uh, human events, but the origin and the authenticity behind the words that were recorded is that God breathed words. Let me give you a couple of quotes, not to impress you with quotes, but I found them helpful, and hopefully maybe this will be helpful. And a couple of uh, Uh, dead theologians they're always helpful to to listen and read to but uh, they have a couple of uh, insights that I think help in what we mean or unpacking when we talk about inspired okay what do we mean by inspired and as a Christian in your understanding of scripture you need to kind of pay attention to these kinds of things and they're brief but I found them helpful one the first one is from uh, a saint of the past, Carl F.H. Henry. He was uh, a renowned American theologian. One of the first, uh, he was the first uh, editor. Billy Graham chose to be the editor of Christianity Today. And he said this. He defined it this way. It'll be on the screen. Carl Henry, this quote. He said, Inspired means that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit whereby the sacred writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, being restrained from error by the Holy Spirit and guided in the choice of words they used consistently with their own disparate personalities and stylistic peculiarities. That's kind of just a a fancy way of saying that If you read Paul and you read John or you read Matthew, that you read them enough, you will realize that even if you didn't see the reference, you can just tell by their style of writing, there's a difference there, just the way that you and others may write. You may write very wordy and others are writing very briefly, others may use commas very elaborately and others may not just even break a paragraph. You ever get those kind of emails? please break paragraphs if you love your pastor, right? Uh, um, and that's exactly what Peter taught about the Word of God. Notice what Peter says. This is a great verse to make sure you know where this is in your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. The apostle Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no Prophecy of Scripture. No, he's not just talking about prophecy, but he's talking about no word of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not just somebody's invention. For no prophecy... Prophecy just means to speak forth the word. For no prophecy, no Scripture, we could say, was ever produced by the will of man. But look at this and watch the words really carefully. But men spoke from God, the origin was from God, as they were carried along, guided, supervised by the Holy Spirit. That's an important verse, just like 2 Timothy 3, you should have marked in your Bible and know where it is. Let me give you another quote from a different dead theologian, Charles Hodge. He was one of the great Reformed theologians that taught at Princeton before Princeton went uh, liberal and rejected the authority of Scripture. But uh, Charles Hodge helps us here when he writes this about inspiration. Notice what this quote says. Charles Hodge, inspiration was an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men, which rendered them the organs or mouthpieces of God for the infallible, that's a fancy word that means without error, Communication of His, God's mind, and will. Okay, It's the influence of the Spirit on certain men that rendered them the very mouthpiece or organs of the mind and will of God. Now look at this last sentence. They were in such a sense the organs or mouthpiece of God, now look at this last statement, that what they said, God said. You see, that's why we take seriously the Word of God and why we believe and see how the Bible is a trustworthy gift of God. The Scriptures find their origin in God. The bottom line is that the Scriptures are as reliable and trustworthy as God is. Is God trustworthy? Amen? Is God reliable? Then why are, would we ever doubt the words of God as being anything less than reliable and trustworthy. Now, you know, and I know, the Bible has always had its critics and and skeptics and that want to question, certainly, you know, fairy tales and books and those type of things. And, uh, and, you know, I, I just find that a lot of what I believe, a lot of the attack upon the authority of Scripture is really an attack upon what the Word of God does to a person. One of the things that the Word of God does is its job is that it convicts of sin. It lets you know what is righteous and what is unrighteous. It knows what is acceptable before God and what is unacceptable before God. And so man's nature, as fallen and depraved, casts off restraints and by nature, if you remember Romans 1, rejects authority, rejects any constraints, suppresses the truth, Romans 1 says. And so why not attack and say, well, it's just a bunch of myth and what it has to say about whatever, again, that doesn't fit my lifestyle or my inclination, therefore I'm just going to reject it because you can't trust it. Who knows where, who the authors are and it's just fables and fairy tales. And so we understand kind of that attack in that way and there's answers and people that are very adequate in addressing those things. But I read something from uh, in uh, John MacArthur's book called Our Sufficiency in Christ and I thought it really fit in here when he said that uh, and he's talking about the overt attacks on the Bible, its origin, its authority, the authorship, all those things. And he said as 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 serious as those things are, he said really it is not the worst attack. Now, this isn't going to be on the screen, but listen, uh, in essence, I'm just going to summarize what he says here uh, in, uh, in this little s- segment in this book. He says the most dangerous attack... Maybe you can go to the next slide. I'm not sure what the next slide is uh, so there's not confusion. Yeah, great. He says, he says, rather than the most serious or dangerous attack at being the uh, critics and doubters of Scripture, he said the most dangerous attack, in his opinion, is the subtle undermining which comes from those who say they believe in the Bible, when in reality, they deny it as sufficient for their life. Do you see what he's saying? He said it's that is the real subtle, dangerous attack, because if... The people who claim to be followers of Christ, they themselves do not take the word of God seriously. How in the world do we expect a culture to take the word of God seriously? And there comes the rain. All right. Hope your windows are up outside. All right? Any mass dash, I'll understand. You remember what James says in James 122? He says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. We have a lot of people that are spectators, that, that the things of God, the word of God, uh, they're just spectators, sports. They're, you know, if you were in school, you know you can audit a course or you could take it for credit. We've got a lot of Christian auditors. Okay, When you audit a course, you don't have to take tests, you don't have to write papers, you don't have to even show up. You're just auditing, you're just there You know, because you're kind of interested in whatever it is. Don't be an auditor at church. Now again, when I say take it for credit, take it where it's meaningful and it's serious into your life. Not just somewhere flitters in, flitters out, but the Word of God is a vital part of your life. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, her delight, is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Bible says that person is a blessed person. So the Bible, we need the Bible because not only is it a trustworthy gift from God, but there's a second principle in this passage this morning. Not only is it a trustworthy gift from God, but you need the Bible because it is a transforming guide for life. It is a transforming guide for life. Not only is it trustworthy, but because it is trustworthy, it, the Word of God, the Bible, is a transforming God guide for life. Imagine God... Saving us, changing our lives, uh, putting us on a new path, and just saying, okay, you're on your own. Figure it out. He didn't do that. He's given us His Word as a guide. How do we know God? We know God because His Word reveals God's character. How do we know what pleases God? Because God's Word reveals His character. That's how we understand it. And it's, and it's principles of life. It might not tell you what detergent to buy. It might not tell you to, what kind of car to buy. But it will give you principles of just about anything that you and I may encounter in life. The Word of God will address that. And so the Scripture, how does the Bible transform? And in verses 17, 16, and 17, we see several of these that we want to make note of. How does the Bible transform? First of all, the Bible is useful for teaching God's truth, all right? For teaching God's truth. How does the Bible transform us? Well, it's the Bible, it's the Word of God that is the source of God's truth. It doesn't matter if only 20% of the culture accepted as the Word of God. We're not interested, We we don't get our faith by polls, right? No, we're guided because the Bible, unlike politicians and culture and laws that change up and down, the Bible is consistent in reflecting the will of God. So it's the Bible, if its origin and reliability is rooted in the very character of God, that's why... Uh, Paul says it is useful for teaching God's truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. It conveys, the Bible contains God's wisdom concerning the great questions of life that we all have at some point. Is there a God? What is He like? How can we know Him? Who are we? Why are we on this planet? Uh, Why is there death and suffering? What lies beyond the grave? What does the future hold? How do I know right from wrong? The Word of God gives us truth—truth truth not based upon Gallup polls—but it also gives us principles and precepts for the very practical things of living. The real, the real nuts and bolts minutia of daily practical life that we grapple with daily. How do I relate to my wife or my husband? How do I relate to others and have relationships? How do I raise my children? How do I manage my money? How do I conduct ethically my business that glorifies God? How do I make wise decisions? How should I think about the news and certain events and certain uh, political ideas? How do I think about this? How do I control my emotions such as? Anger, depression, anxiety, impulsiveness. How do I overcome dem, uh, temptation? The Bible gives us a guide. Why? Because the Bible is, is necessary because it, the Word of God, the God-breathed Word, is transforming. It changes us because it is a source for teaching us the truth of the, word, of the will of God. You know, when you get a piece of equipment, buy a new computer, or buy something new, or a car, or whatever, it comes with a little book called Owner's Manual, right? Well, this is God, this is the Owner's Manual. We are created by God. This is the operating manual. And don't, don't just say, well, I know what those guys said, you know, in Detroit, or whatever, you know, or, you know, I know, you know, that Apple, you know, they don't know what they're doing, those Microsoft people, I know what I, I'm doing, I'm just going to get in there, I'm going to start tearing this thing apart, or I'm going to start loading it with this program, whatever, and guess what, you take something you paid a lot of money for, and because you didn't have the wisdom to look at the owner's manual, to, to read and understand how you can make the most value out of this huge investment, you just destroyed it. God has given us an owner's manual that we can guide our life. We have, thankfully, when we travel, most of us use our little GPS on our phones, right? <clears throat> and it takes us down some winding roads when we could have just turned a corner and been there, you know. It. You ever done that, right? You ever done that? And But, you know, this is God's GPS. Someone said it's God's positioning system. You want to know what... The God's positioning system is where you can just pull up God's GPS and find out what God has to say on an issue that you're needing in your life. We go to the Word of God. You need to, that's why it's important if it's going to be profitable for teaching, implies if it's profitable for teaching, it means that you've got to be a student of the Word of God. You've got to study the Word of God. That takes work takes energy. It takes cutting off uh uh maybe things that you binge watch, you know, and there's times in which I've done that. And there's nothing don't get into a guilt trip, all right? All right, we're not here to do that. But but my point is is that we should always be moving where we desire more and more time to know God and know God through his word and to study it, to read it, to read good books about the Bible. You know, the Bible's always primary but read good books that are going to help you understand the Bible. Be faithful and consistent in coming to church where we, here's the flash: we teach the Bible. You know, I'm always amazed when people just say, oh, I don't understand the Bible. Oh, I want to learn. Well, come to church. Bring your Bible. I see some of you writing notes. You know, be engaged. That's how you do it. This is free. I've done all the work for you. You just, you just learn, right? That's a great benefit. Go to a a class, a small group. In other words, you need it. You need to be taught by faithful people that believe that this is the word of the Lord. So not only is it profitable and transforming for teaching, but another thing we learn here is the Bible is useful for confronting our sin. The word reproof there means to convince or expose. Reproof means to convince or expose. The Greek word uh, is used to, ref- is like you're going to refute an opponent. You're going to refute an opponent. It-, it comes from use in the legal domain where a lawyer convinced the judge, the word in its origin, the word reproof, um, Yes, I want to make sure the ESV had reproof there again. Uh, The word reproof was, uh, in its origin of the Greek word, was a lawyer who was convincing the judge or jury, if you will, as to specific wrongs of his opponent's case. It is to prove something uh, without doubt, to confront it in such a way that there's no question that the issue is right or the issue is wrong so think about that in relationship and how the bible is using it for reproof the bible has the power to expose sin and if i'm submitted to god and his word i'm allowing the word of god to reproof my life to to convince me to convict me to show where i'm wrong are you ever wrong yeah am i ever wrong yeah yeah Oh, you're such a saint. But I need the Word of God, especially those heart issues. See, it's the heart issues. It's not just being good behavior. It's the heart issues that God sees. Allowing God to, how is He going to do that? Is He going to guilt guilt me into it? No. He's going to use the Spirit and the Word to bring reproof into my life and bring necessary transformation. There's a third aspect of how the Bible is a transforming guide to life is that Scripture is useful for correction, for correction. A little similar like reproof. The Word doesn't just point us what is wrong and leave us there. I don't have it on the screen, but 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Word of God doesn't just bring correction, but it tells us how to get back on the right path. Some of you are not on the right path this morning. Well, the Word of God helps you to say, God, help me to get back on the right path in right relationship in In my fellowship with you. The word of God brings correction. None of us by nature like correction. You remember the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Talks about how even the discipline that God brings. uh, Like human discipline of a parent. Is not pleasant. This is going to hurt me. More than it's going to hurt you. Nobody bought that. Nobody believed that. It's just a big lie. Right? But correction Of a godly parent, just the way it models after God, isn't just to punish, it is to bring restoration, correct wrong behavior in order to get on a right path. That's how God works, and that's how a godly parent should work when they're working and disciplining with their child. So teaching, confronting uh, uh, sin, bringing correction. And there's a fourth, is that Scripture, and these all kind of hinge together, is useful for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. Once we're on the path, the Bible helps us to know how we make progress. It gives, us, it gives us warning signs of what to avoid. Here's some red lights. You know, we have red lights at the corner of streets. Now, we live in Lakeland, so we know that's kind of a suggestion to some people. But red lights are meant to warn you, to stop. And what happens if you run the red lights? Well, you might get away with it once or twice. But sooner or later, it's going to be a disaster. And so as a a follower of Christ, where God has provided us warnings, if we just say, no, I know the way, I know what's right, and I'm going to run the red lights because I know best, and we wonder... God, where are you? you? I crashed and burned. Where are you? Right? And God has given us training in righteousness. He's given us an understanding. Hebrews 12.11, it's not on the screen, referring to the discipline of God. He says, no discipline of God seems pleasant at the time, but it is profitable, in 12.11 of Hebrews, he uses this phrase, it is profitable for those who have been trained by it. What is he saying? As you are corrected, as you are, God is moving you along and developing you in righteousness that reflects his character, then if we don't ever learn from error, if we don't ever learn, if we're not going to allow God to train us and to set us in, in growing, then it's all for, for naught. So transforming work of the Bible... Is essential as God leads us and is a guide for life. But there's another aspect, I think, in verse 17 that is related to the result of the Bible's transformation. And it has to do with, also in verse 17, that using the scripture will result in maturity. All right? Look at this. The result of the Bible's transformation isn't just uh, internal. In, in, our, in our growing and, and process, but it has an external effect, if you will. And, and it, it, when he says that the man of God are, would be complete, that, that's speaking about maturity. Maturity. In our study on Wednesdays about Hebrews, that was a theme all the way woven through Hebrews that he was wanting, the writer of Hebrews was wanting his audience to be mature. What's another way to say mature? Mature. Grow up! Grow up! You know, you mean you're 50 years old and you're still, do, you know, I mean, you know, grow up. Well, as Christians, we need to mature. Mature is the goal. Paul made, a, made mention in Ephesians 4 13. He said, Until we all attain to the unity of faith, And the knowledge of the Son of God to mature, these aren't on the screen, to mature manhood. In other words, until Jesus returns, we are all moving forward in a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to growing up. To growing up in godliness, the measure of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he said, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. He said, be children or infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. How do you get maturity in, in, the, in, in the spiritual sense? You get it by a commitment to learning and allowing the Word of God to develop maturity and to grow you up. Remember, uh, Timothy said, when I was a child, I thought like a child Acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. He wasn't just talking about chronological growing. He's talking about in the spiritual sense that as I grew in a maturity of the Word of God, understanding what God's will and purpose is for my life, I began to put away childish things. But some Christians that still, still act like children in their behavior. And if you remember, those of you who are here on uh, Wednesday in Hebrews, remember around at the uh, end of chapter five or four, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, says, "You know, there's so many things I want to I want to tell you, but you can't handle it because you're so immature. You you should be eating the meat of the word by now, but you still need milk. What's the problem?" He was addressing. He was addressing their immaturity. The reason that they were ready to abandon Christ is because they had such a deep-rooted immaturity. They they were never growing in their faith. That's the writer of Hebrews. And so Paul would say in Colossians 3.2, he says, set your mind on things above, not On things of the earth. What are we to do? We are to set our mind on things above. The Word of God helps us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. We are to be committed to God's truth because it's God's truth that brings the maturity. But not only does it bring maturity, but the transformation of the Word of God, the result of the Bible's transformation, also results in serving God. He says that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. Equipped. Why do we need equipment? We need equipment because there's assignments. If you're getting ready to... My son's a firefighter. And when I go out there, he always likes to take me to one of the stations and show me the massive equipment that's on some of those trucks and the the equipment that he has to wear and carry. Why? Why? Because they're not just going in in flip-flops and a t-shirt and shorts. You will die. You will burn up. You need the right equipment to address the crises. What does the Word of God do for the believer? It equips you. But also it equips you because, again, God has not just saved us to have us sit in church and wait for the sweet by and by. Sit on our blessed assurance for the rest of our life, right? What is he, why has He saved us? Because God has uniquely chosen us, the Bible says, before the foundation of the earth. God has saved us, gifted us with very unique and specific gifts for His kingdom and for the advancement of the gospel on the earth. But he hasn't just left us trying to, you know, hey, can I borrow your screwdriver? Hey, can I borrow your hand? You know, you kind of like this ragtag army out there with homemade bows and arrows, you know, whatever. No, God has equipped you with the best. Ephesians 1 says that every, every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ. And so God has equipped us. So what is the Word of God? Why do we need the Bible? Because it's the Bible that brings the equipping that is part of the transformation as our guide for life, maturing, growing up, serving, being equipped to serve Christ and His kingdom and fulfill the Great Commission. You may have heard this story before, but I haven't read it in a while. There's a man, a story of a man who was in prison, and was in need of some money. But he wrote his mother and asked her to send $500 immediately. And soon after, he got a package in the mail, opened the package, and it was a Bible. And on top of the Bible, there was a letter that said, Son, I love you. Pray and read your Bible. Well, the guy, the son, was really ticked off. He got on the phone and called his mother and said, Mama... I appreciate the Bible, but what I, write, I need right now is $500. And she told him over the phone, Son, pray and read your Bible. He got more ticked off and hung up the phone on his mother. Then he wrote a letter. Mother, I know you believe in God, and that's the problem with you Christians. You're so heavenly minded that you, you don't know how to function in the real world. When I need $500, I don't need a Bible I need a check, I, I five greenbacks. If I needed money, if I need money, don't send me a Bible and tell me to pray. And he got a letter back from his mother and said, Son, pray and read your Bible. He was so irritated his mother that for the six months he was in jail, that Bible stayed on the little shelf in his cell. And after a long while, he finally got out. And his mother, like most moms, was there, To meet him. But he was so mad. He couldn't even hardly even talk to his mother. He said mom. You let me down. I needed you as my mother. And you let me down. And she says what do you mean son? I wrote you. I called you. I begged you for $500. And every time you gave me the same old line. Pray and read your Bible. Well, son, did you pray and read your Bible? Yeah, I prayed and I read my Bible, but I'm still broke now as I was when you told me the first time to pray and read your Bible. Son, do you have that Bible I sent you? He reached in his bag and he handed her the book. He said, son, or she said, son, let me ask you one more time. Did you pray and did you read your Bible? Yes, Mama, I told you. I prayed and I read my Bible. Son, you neither prayed nor read your Bible. And she'd open up the Bible, and in every major divisional section within the text, there was a $100 bill taped inside of it. If the boy had just read his Bible, he would have understood the thing that he was looking for was right there all along well I don't know about you but I'd like to get one of those Bibles but you know we have God's treasure all waiting on us to do what? pray and read your Bible why do we need the Bible? really because it's the word of God the very breath of God that God has given to us A gift, a trustworthy gift that has the transforming power to guide us in our life. Let's stand and pray this morning.